Welcome to more about officership, an open and honest discussion about officership in Australia. As we move towards One Australia Territory, host Captain Matt Reeves is joined by officers from across the country to discuss the challenges and rewards of being an officer today. Well, welcome to another episode of the Candidates Podcast. It is the second last one for the year. Uh, the year is drawing to a close. I hope that you're having a, a Merry Christmas and a happy, you know, festive season. Uh, but before we wrap up, I uh, just want to remind you that you can uh, listen to the podcast at any time, the ones that we've done in the library. Uh, you just go to More About Officership in iTunes and you can find them there and they'll get sent to your device each week or you can log on to the Salvation Army Australia Candidates Facebook page, and we'll put them up by the end of each week as well. So thanks for listening in. I know a lot of people have had questions or comments uh, throughout the year, and we'll pick it up again uh, in the new year in February. Now today, our or this episode, our guest is Major Robert Evans, who is, well, he doesn't have an, well, you have an appointment, you haven't, don't actually have the physical thing (laughs) yet, but previously, up until not long ago, was the Corps Officer at Cranbourne with his wife, uh, Vanessa, um, and is heading off to the Solomon Islands in a matter of days. Matter of days, that's right. So anyway, welcome to you, Rob. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Rob, tell us, just tell us about yourself. Who are you? Who am I? Okay, so Vanessa and I uh, went into the training college in uh, 1995 as a part of the Messengers of the Truth session. Uh, we came out of Glenroy Corps. Um, I've grown up in a Salvation Army family. Vanessa didn't, though she did attend youth group in her teenage years. Uh, we met at Glenroy, fell in love at Glenroy. Ah, um, uh, romance. A couple yeah. of youth groupers in love. and, <laughs> and It's probably we... the first time someone hasn't fallen in love at a camp, so that's good. <laughs> Indeed, it wasn't a camp. <laughs> And uh, we got married in 93, into college 95, and um, the training college experience for us was, um, we actually thoroughly enjoyed it, to be honest. Um, there were some challenges along the way, as there always is, but because we had a very strong sense of calling for both of us, and we saw friends prior to that going into the college and who, waiting for our day. Who know? was the core officer at Glenroy? Well, it was, it was in transition. We When we left Glenroy, um, Trevor and Christine Pickens had just left. Oh, yeah. And Gordon and Diane Main were coming in. Okay. I only heard recently, and now I'm obviously a bit slow on the uptake, but recently Glenroy closed. Yeah, it was really sad, not surprising. We saw when we were at Glenroy over 20 years ago that Glenroy was in decline. There were some challenges. Yeah. And those challenges, um, you know, had had a a variety of faces to them. Yeah. Um, So Glenroy needed to reinvent itself. And we're very encouraged to hear that the planting in Broadmeadows is... Which I think is happening out of Moreland. Correct. Is it sort of Darren Elkington and the crew out there? So anyway, I hope I got that right. Otherwise, I've just... you're quite correct. Point to him as <laughs> we really look forward to seeing what happens in that space because yeah, Broadmeadows yeah. certainly needs the Salvation Army. Yeah. So what was it like growing up at Glenroy? Look, it was good. Glenroy was a vibrant call when I was growing up there. I was, I was very heavily involved in a variety of activities. Um, Sagala, um, Boys Legion, uh, from the age of about eight, um, actively involved in the band from about 14. Um, got involved with Red Shield Appeal from as young as I can remember. I uh, remember being dragged along by mum and dad and mum was a district chairperson in Koolaroo. 
and then I got given an area to area captain when I was 14 years old, and, <laughs> and I've been doing that that in one form or another ever since. So that's you know the dynamics of core life that are familiar to me today as an officer uh, were a part of my upbringing. So people listening, generally for people exploring ministry as in officership or through officership, what what did you do before you? Went to college, like yep. oftentimes people say, oh, well, I, I did this for a job. I don't think I could be an officer. What, what did you do? Well, it's interesting because I had two completely different jobs. Um, when I left high school, um, I knew from a young age I was called to be an officer. Um, I had a very distinct calling as an eight-year-old. Um, okay. might sound odd to some, um, but it's as clear as day to me even today. So I grew up knowing that officership was my pathway. Going through high school, it's not a careers option on the careers board. No. Um, so my second passion... <laughs> it doesn't matter what test you take no, in high school. It just, doesn't just say wasn't salvation there. officer. Um, so I pursued a career in architectural drafting, uh, oh, wow. which was my passion and I was good at. Um, I did some work experience at the Broadmeadows City Council in their engineers department, worked alongside the one of the drafts people in that office and I had a ball and I knew then this is what I was going to do. So by the time I'd finished year 11, I was itching to get out into the workforce. Um, so I decided to leave school at the end of year 11, went to RMIT and started training as a draftsman, got a job at, at the Kinhill Engineers in the um, St Kilda Road. I ended up moving into a smaller architect's office because I was really wanting to do architecture, not engineering. And um, I loved it. I did that 18 months of just intense. We had a, a, a saying in our office, draw until you drop. And we pretty much did. So a couple of nights a week, night school at RMIT, working full-time as a trainee draftsman. It was awesome. Yeah. About partway through that journey, God disrupted that and reminded me of my calling. Um, and I always knew that that was there. How, how did that um, happen? Do you recall? Yeah, I, I recall sitting in this little architect's office in Brunswick in a dream job for any junior draftsman. Um, and I was deeply discontent and, and, and restless. And I found it very difficult to get motivated. And I'm a highly motivated person. Then I attended a core camp uh, where Ian Southwell was the guest back in those days at this camp. And he was speaking. Oh, yes, Ian Southwell, yeah. Yeah, he was speaking about the glory of God. I still remember um, it. And I remember at that point, God really tapping on my shoulder strongly and saying, time to reposition. Um, I tried to escape that. I, we were, I think we were at Hall's Gap at the time and walked outside and just walked into the glory of God and went, okay, this is it. So then I needed to wrestle with my own um, uh, pride and expectations about finishing something and finishing well. I needed to know that I was leaving drafting for the right reasons. Um, and so when I got my results that year and I did well, I, I knew I, I, it wasn't because I wasn't cutting it. It was because I needed to reposition. Uh, that put me into a period of a little, about six weeks of wilderness where I was looking for another job. And what I was looking for was something that would just um, pay the bills, be nine to five and allow me to refocus on getting ready for college. So I ended up, it came up and worked at Kmart for four and a half years as it works out because I got married in that time. And um, so I was originally going to go for the 93 session. I got married instead in 93. And Kmart was a very interesting journey. While I initially hated being there, um, it was probably where I grew the most as a person. Um, I lacked confidence. Um, I didn't have a lot of people skills. And Kmart exposed me face-to-face -face with people, with um, people management, and I got offered some positions that were 
you know, you know, very flattering, but were taking me in a direction where God said, that's not why you're here. You're not here for that reason. So what's been fascinating for me throughout my officership is that both my experiences at Kmart and my experiences as a trainee draftsman have, um, have fed into my officership significantly in every appointment. So when you went through that process of changing, what now Vanessa, who's not unfortunately not here today, and we'll get to that in a yes. little bit, um, but what, what was she... What was she experiencing? Ness was um, Ness was working in the bank, Commonwealth Bank, okay. um, in the card um, the card centre, um, mm-hmm. doing credit cards or something like that. And so at that time we were um, going out together, and and Ness had her own very distinct core. And I remember that actually being questioned by the candidates board. There was a bit of a concern that she was kind of riding on my calling. But prior to us actually becoming boyfriend and girlfriend, she would talk to me about her calling. She would talk to me about that God was prompting her in this direction. And so for her, her calling was very real. Um, and that was affirmed when we became candidates. Um, yeah, God provided for us in quite miraculous ways uh, when we were getting ready to go to college. Well, some of your appointments, you've been officer for 21, 21 years. years. Yep. You must have had some varied appointments, although you have had long appointments. We've had long. We're both, we are about... still or just coming out of our fourth appointment. Wow. So you've done, you're at Cranbourne, obviously. Yep. So we've done five years at Cranbourne. Yep. Just finishing five years this year. Uh, prior to that, we had eight years at Norunga in South Australia. Uh, then before that, we had four years at Horsham in Country Vic. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then our first appointment was four years in Palmerston in the Northern Territory. So we've served in three different states in four different divisions and four very, very different appointments. Any highlights? Oh, too many to name. So, oh, <laughs> look, look, so many highlights. We've, oh, I can honestly say we've loved every appointment. What's been interesting to us is that, you know, we would never have picked any of those appointments for ourselves, but everyone was right. So after 21 years, we're still are naive enough to believe that God's hand is in the process. Yeah. And we trust that. We really trust that. Well, it's that. not naivety. It's, no, it, is, right. it is trust. There it, is a faith factor. Look, we've, we've loved the diversity of those appointments. Darwin was a highlight in a sense. Did, it was did you our, just sweat the whole time you were there? Though? We did. And I, had oh. to, I, look, I looked around me and I saw everybody else in transparent shirts yeah. and going, this is normal. <laughs> I sit in an air-conditioned room here and I'm sweating. You know, I, don't, I don't know how anyone could cope up there. but Well, Darwin ruined us because um, I'm now a sook in the winter. Oh, yeah. I absolutely hate the winter. Oh, you know one of those people that complains about our cold is I all do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so give me the heat and I'm a happy man. Yeah, okay. So moving through then, you, you've you done all, all core appointments. Yes, they're all core great, appointments. Which yeah. kind of leads us to this part that I wanted yeah. to, to focus on uh, today. You're, you're heading overseas. We are. To the Solomon Islands. Yes. Now, you've moved in different states. That's one thing. And your kids have come with you. That's another thing. My research says that you are going, um, but they're not. Your research is correct. Very good. Now, now before we dig into this, and yes. I really do want to dig into it, the reason Vanessa's not here is yes. that we're recording this today, uh, and you're leave- we've just found out last night that you're leaving in four days. Yeah, leaving on Tuesday. So hit the appropriate panic button. Yeah, um, things are underway. So, so Vanessa Ness was going to join she's us. She's cleaning while I'm here talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done. Take one for the team. So Indeed. Vanessa, we, I mean, she was coming, and and that's that's, right. that's great, and we completely understand that. So we can talk about her when she's we can when she's not here. Yeah, you're at Cranbourne. You're doing your thing. You've been there five years. Yep. 
living the dream, you know, enjoying ministry. Now you're going to the Solomon Islands. That, something must have happened. Right. I need to backtrack before Cranbourne. Go for it. Okay. So first of all, I want to say to you, when we entered into off, um, college, we would never have imagined um, a passion for cross-cultural ministry. Okay. Well, I think at that point in our lives, we were really interested in youth ministry and that sort of stuff. Darwin, without realising at the time, was the training ground for where we are today. Uh, Darwin, with the Indigenous population, um, also a lot of military build-up brought people from different backgrounds. Uh, we did some work with the East Timorese when that crisis was was happening at that time. Uh, we also hosted about six YWAM teams from Southeast Asia. So we were being exposed to a cross-cultural space without even realising what was happening. And we found that we fitted in that space really well. Darwin was culturally a very different place to Melbourne, not just because of the weather, uh, but there was just a different ethos, a different way of life up there, um, different needs up there, and we found we fitted into that space really well. Then we went to Horsham and um, we got exposed to, I, I had the privilege of being exposed to some leadership training at Willow Creek. Uh, which broadened my horizon when it comes to an understanding of leadership, gave me a language and a framework and it developed a passion, a parallel passion with leadership development. We went to Nolunga and that's when we um, embarked on our first um, short-term mission trip as um, as a core. We met a young couple in Adelaide, um, Sean and Anne from Thailand. Uh, they worked for YWAM. Um, so we'd already had a connection there with YWAM in the past. They invited us over. We took a mission team to Chiang Mai to serve their church um, at a place called Citygate Church in Chiang Mai. That exposed us to short-term missions and to the possibilities there. And then we um, have had since then um, four other mission trips to Indonesia where we've served alongside Nyoman Timanuli Nyoman and Sunni who Nyoman trained with us in college. Oh, okay. So even there, you know, so whereabouts um, in Indonesia? Well, we've we've um, done mission trips to um, Bali to the boys and girls home. Yep. We went to Jakarta and served at Jalambar Corps, and then two trips to Palu, uh, where we've served alongside Yeoman at the school where he's the director in Palu. But we also then on that first trip over to Palu, we discovered a school up in the remote areas in the mountains that was in desperate need of repair. The officer had a vision. He had um, he had a plan, he had land, uh, he had labour, but he had no money. Uh, so we came back to Cranbourne, raised enough money to rebuild Dongi Dongi School. And so then we went back a year later and we participated in that project. And um, so that was a real honour to be able to serve in that space. So we've developed over the over the four um, appointments a real passion for cross-cultural ministry. Ness and I then began to train. You know, I, I've just finished, just in November, finished my degree in uh, mission studies major. And um, that has, again, given me language and a framework on how to do cross-cultural ministry. And I've thoroughly enjoyed the last six years of study, Cranbourne has provided me with a real-life laboratory to apply that learning. Is Cranbourne quite multicultural? Very multicultural. In fact, it's um, neighbouring with Dandenong. We're getting a lot of overflow yeah, okay. of multiculturalism. We, The dominant cultures in Cranbourne outside of Anglo um, are Pacific Island groups, um, Afghanistan, um, Sri Lanka, India, 
and now there is a build-up of um, South Sudanese. So a lot of the Sudanese okay. in Berwick we're seeing coming into Cranbourne. So Cranbourne is rapidly changing, and in our building in Cranbourne, we have three other congregations meeting. Um, there's Seventh-day Adventists on Saturday. There are mainly a Pacific Islander group. Yep. We have an Indian congregation meeting on Sunday night in the youth centre, and we have a um, Sudanese congregation meeting Sunday night in our main church. So when... Well, that's a lot of things happening. It is. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> a bit dizzy. When you, at some point you get a phone call or an email or, well, or something, something happens. And yeah. So what happened there was how that came to pass. So that, that's the background to yep. the passion. So for the last 10 to 15 years, we've been putting on our future service forms that we want to serve overseas. Mm-hmm. We haven't been knocking on any doors. We've just been putting it out there and just trusting that God will know the timing. Uh, we did think it would happen when our kids finished school. Um, which it, it has, yeah. and not oh, as, a little quicker than I, I thought, and we'll get there. Um, we, our heart has been in Indonesia because of our mission trips over there, yeah. and so we've desired to serve there. This year, when the um, international um, service opportunity list came out, we saw two appointments in Indonesia that we thought would suit us. So we knocked on the door. And we we expressed an interest. We sent the email to headquarters going, we would like to explore those appointments. We got invited into THQ for a meeting and um, it was at that meeting that they put Solomon Islands on the table. So that took us a little bit off um, off guard. We didn't expect that. Apparently they had chosen us for Solomon Islands um, prior to that meeting, but because the kids were in high school still, they took it off the table in consideration for our family. Um, but because we approached them about serving overseas, overseas, they put it back on the table and said, we would like you to consider um, this appointment to Solomon Islands. So, okay. So you, were, you went asking or sort of offering for Indonesia yep. and then Solomon Islands. Where is the Solomon Islands? Well, and what is going on there? Great question. Look, <laughs> I, to be honest, I had to look it up. I'm pretty good with my geography, but <laughs> Solomon Island has just hadn't been on our radar. Yeah. It's to the um, east southeast of Papua New Guinea. Solomon Islands is a part of the Papua New Guinea territory. Okay. Um, so we we will come under Papua New Guinea's responsibility. Yep. Um, Solomon Islands has six main islands island groups, but overall 900-plus islands um, scattered throughout the So South where, where will you be based? We'll be based in Honiara, which is the capital, and that's on the island called uh, Guadalcanal, uh, which is apparently has, which I've had to look up on the Second World War history, has <laughs> quite a history with the Second World War. And um, so Honiara, yeah, we'll be in the capital there. Um, our appointment is the officers in in um, in charge of the Solomon. So we're not there as core officers. Okay. We're there with the responsibility to expand the presence of the army throughout the islands. So the Salvation Army's only been in the Solomon Islands for five years. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a very, very new um, venture. Okay. So, what, planting? We don't know, I suppose. Well, there is currently there's a core in Honiara. Yep. And there's about 100 to 120 people in that core. There's also a fellowship group that has just started this year in North Malaita, one of the other large islands. Um, And 15 soldiers were enrolled there back in June this year. And another three soldiers have been enrolled there in the last couple of weeks. And that's growing quite rapidly. So we will need to be playing catch up as to where the army's presence has expanded. And what, what happened with that was two soldiers from Honiara went back to their home village in Malaita 
shared what it, what God had been doing through the Salvation Army. They were there in uniform, and there was a church group over there that had um, had uh, their pastor had um, I'm not quite sure what the right word is. Things went wrong. The church folded. They heard what was happening in the army, felt the spirit was strong with the army, and they joined us. Okay. So what was it like thinking? When when they said Solomon Islands, did you go, yep, when do we start? Or did you say, go back to with Vanessa and say, well, hang on a second, we've talked about this for a long time, and now it's actually a reality, perhaps. What what do we think? There were a range of things going on. Before we even approached THQ about Indonesia, we spoke to our kids. This was a big deal for uh, us. Do you mind, how old are your kids? You Beck and Adam are twins yep. and they're 17. Yeah, so they just finished high school. Just finished Year high 12. school, yeah. Right. So for us, this was, is this the right time leaving our children now? And we need to wrestle with that question. And Sitting if it down isn't with, the right time, when is the right correct. time? Correct. <laughs> Sitting down with Beck and Adam and flagging the Indonesia appointments, uh, their response to us showed an enormous emotional and spiritual maturity. Um, Beck turned around and said to us very, very adamantly, she was the one that we thought might be a bit more concerned, and she said, God's been preparing you for this for a long time. Don't you dare let us be an excuse for not going. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that gave us the confidence to approach. I do need to say that the Army have been very, very considerate of our kids and family in this whole process, and even in those early interviews were questioning us and making sure that we were certain that we wanted to leave the kids at this time. Yeah. So what what do you do now? Like, you're obviously ready to go. I'm just thinking, you know, the the story behind the story is that you you grow up at Glenroy, you track around a few divisions in the... In the in our territory, and now you're overseas. You, that's where you're heading. What 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 are you going to do? Like, I, I I know that's a hard question to answer because you haven't been there. Yeah. But do you kind of sense a, like a real preparedness for this? Well, I know you talked about the study stuff and you know yeah, look, the we, stuff that's happening. We do, and I don't want to overstate that or sound in any way arrogant before we arrive there. We've been on a learning mission for the last few months. So we have um, spoken to a number of people who have served there previously. Uh, Rod Begley from Box Hill Corps, um, a soldier who runs a shipping company, has spent two and a half years serving over there um, with his work. So we went and had a wonderful meal with him and his wife to learn about their experiences. Um, Major Malcolm and Laurel Herring uh, from New Zealand Territory, they are retired officers who have been the most recent officers in Honiara. Um, so we've spent some time talking with them about their experiences. We've done a fair bit of research to get as much background as we can about what we're going into. With the training I've done with cross-cultural mission, um, having a framework and a language to understand how to approach that space has been immensely helpful. Um, so as I've been sitting at home late at night with nothing really to do other than packing. Cleaning. Um, I have. I've developed a Solomon Islands ministry development strategy um, because that's just the way I'm wired. And that's been bringing together um, some biblical study on St. Paul's missionary journeys. That's been the most recent unit I've studied. It's been bringing together um, some of the, one of my favourite missiologists from the 18th 
1800s, 19th centuries, um, Henry Venn. Some of his philosophy of ministry, of mission, has been very helpful, bringing together PNG's mission intentions. Is it a Christian country? Very much so. Very much so. About 95% Christian. Okay. So what, what denominations would be represented? Um, Seventh-day Adventists are very strong oh, yeah. um, over there. Well, they, they, um, they, I mean, they are in the, in, I was going to say in the islands. But yes, they, they are, they, yeah. Um, there are, there is a spattering of other denominations like Anglican and that, um, some Pentecostal congregations, CRC, mm-hmm. very strong over there as well. Mm-hmm. I remember going to Samoa once, not, not, I don't, I wasn't doing mission, I was going on a holiday. And every shop you went into, it was Hillsong. <laughs> you know, then, and then there was these missionaries that would come over and you, the Americans in the street and that. Um, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that 100% of people that live there would be uh, professing Indeed. I think that's Christian, the case. So There are some challenges we're going into and in terms of what do we do, how do we approach this, we're, we're aware that Solomon Islands has an 85% unemployment rate, yeah, which is staggering. I was going to ask you about the... Con- like we under there's cultural stuff, yeah, and there's context stuff. Yeah. There's obviously what what do idle hands do? Eighty five percent of people not they working. drink, they drink. Um, they there's a there's a, um a local beer that's very called Soul Brew, I believe. Yeah, but there's another um substance similar to Carver, but I forgot the name of it. That's very like common. homemade sort yeah. of brew. Um, one of the other big issues over there, significant issues, is domestic violence. Um, so um, recently there was a survey done with the police force and 40% of the police force say it's acceptable to beat your wife if she doesn't bear you a child. So there's some very serious issues there and some systemic um, attitudes towards domestic violence. So there's some challenges for us. This is the difference between when you go to a core and you wonder what songs you're going to sing. I know there's more to it than that. Um, but the, these are like the the army have an opportunity, and and they're not it's not a new opportunity. Like you said, they've been there for a number of years now. But this is another season of of ministry for our army to sort of impact communities, uh, and that that would be a huge challenge. It is a challenge, and one of the things we need to do is we need to discover what is. What role does the Salvation Army need to play? Where do we fit into this? Which can't be all things to all people. We can't. Can there are a lot of churches there. We don't want to, I don't think the Salvation Army should or needs to be trying to replicate what already exists. We need to find our expression. We also need to allow that expression to emerge, quoting Henry then now, to emerge from the soul and the soil of the people. We've got to be very careful not to import a product and just expect it will fit. Um, you You know our history as well as I do. There have been examples throughout our history where we've done it really well. And there have been examples where we've done it very badly. Yeah, copy and paste doesn't work. It doesn't and work. And neither does rinse and repeat. So there's those, they don't work because they don't take into account the culture, the context, the people, you know, I know that make up the culture. but And the other the, thing we've got to be very careful of is not to go in there as the, forgive the terminology, but the white saviours. The, um, the Messiah. We need to, um, we need to raise up an Indigenous church. We need to raise and equip Indigenous leaders. So we have a very strong um, personal mission mandate to equip the people of God to do the work of the ministry. So do you sort of see yourself as well developing local leaders? Absolutely. I think that's that's our first thing. The model that I referred to before that I've, I've um, been putting together late at night is starts off with um, Henry Venn is famous for self-governing, self-supporting, um, self-propagating churches. 
So we need in the self-governing space, this is about identifying and training local leaders. One of the um, blessings in the time it's taken for all the process to happen for us to get there, um, the CSM Wensea local Solomon Islands man has been leading the call. And I think that's been tremendous. Um, he's a good guy from what we can see and what we've been told. Um, and we cannot walk in there and go, we're here now, we're taking over. Well, one, we're not the core officers and nor should we be. We want to take people like Wednesday and go, how now do we develop this young man to discover his own sense of calling if it's not already there? And how do we um, help to resource him to be one of the next leaders of the Salvation Army in the Solomon Islands? And that That's leads good. into that self-supporting space. We develop local leaders. We then um, we then um, nurture those local leaders to identify what are some of the enterprise opportunities in the Solomon Islands, so that they do become self-supporting before we begin starting new missions. Do they make coffee in? They, they grow coffee over there, which I'm okay. pretty excited I was, about. I was wondering how you're going to go. <laughs> so my, my theory is I need to develop a new hobby, and that's roasting coffee beans. <laughs> oh, right. Riding your bike around the Solomon yeah. Islands drinking coffee might not be the same as around here. It'll be somewhat different, but I'm And the footwear, I saw a photo of uniform, so yes. long pants, thongs. That's good. So, it's great. Yeah, anyway. What... For Vanessa yep. and you as well, like leaving the kids behind? Look, that's a tough one. I've got to say... Everything about this appointment excites us. Uh, we can't wait to get there and get on with it. However, leaving our children is a really big, a really big deal for us. Um, I don't think we realised, everyone else did, but we didn't realise how close we were as a family unit until we started to explore that space. What's made that easier is God promised us very, very um, tangibly that he would look after our kids. And so what we've seen in the last three months is um, the provision of of amazing accommodation for them in Cranbourne where their friends are and their, their networks are. Um, a local pastor couple who run the Turning Point Church in Cranbourne are going to okay. have them They're up in stay their with house, them. stay with them. They have a double-storey house, so Beck and Adam have the whole upstairs to themselves. So that's fantastic, plus the support of, of couple a couple who gets us. We've served alongside them on the Cranbourne Ministers Association. So who would have thought five years ago that that relationship would lead to a home for our children? Are they going to go to uni next year? Are they going to work? Yeah, that's the other part of the provision is that um, Beck got a fairly immediate pathway into her career choice. She wants to get into the fitness industry and she's now um, a qualified swim instructor and working in that space, and she's enrolled to do a diploma of sports development at um, VFA, which is uh, Victoria Fitness Academy, okay. TAFE. Um, Adam's journey hasn't been quite as certain until this week. Uh, Just it's all coming week, together. Um, he got a full-time job as a car detailer. Ah. Um, and that was through a contact Gee, we had with the sports chaplain. Uh, so he's working at an American car dealer that you know, does the big GMCs oh, yeah. and Dodge trucks and he's in his element at the moment, watching $100,000, washing $100,000 cars. Yep. But he's applying to go to RMIT next year to um, do a bachelor in um, digital media. Okay. So he um, he's really keen. You know, an environment like this would suit him just fine. Yeah. Um, yeah but God's provided this. So they both have work. They both have, um, well, Adam's got to wait for his placement for uni, but they have a, a study pathway next year. They've got great accommodation. They're, we've had very, very generous people in our lives, um, you know, commit to support them. 
Um, so they'll, they'll do okay. Yeah. Yeah, and they'll stay involved in the church at Cranbourne. They will you think, stay involved at somewhere. Cranbourne for I mean, the it's, moment. I mean, it's a tough thing, isn't it? Look, it's one of those things, mate. You know, you know, with your kids, when when you're the core officers, your interaction with the space is unique. Uh, when that changes and mum and dad are no longer in charge, yep. uh, they've got to get used to interacting with the core in a very different manner. We don't know what that's going to look like next yeah. year. So we, we at this stage, Adam's you know very involved because he's in the worship team. And his girlfriend goes there. Um, Beck, yeah, has been involved with Crash and other things. Look, if they stay at Cranbourne, that would be great. If they gravitate towards Phil Enormous Church, we're just as happy. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're still in the kingdom. That's right. That's good. What um, when you sort of you've already talked about some strategy stuff for Solomon yep. Islands and that. Like one of these, obviously, these conversations are people at the very beginning of exploring the calling to ministry, sort of seeing where things can potentially go. Like for you, it's a 20-year journey to be yep. heading off overseas. When you, If you look back at yourself 20, 1995 when you went to college, what advice would you give yourself for people who are contemplating or exploring ministry now? I would say your calling is um, essential to your longevity as an officer. You will encounter many, many frustrations along the way. You'll be frustrated with the system. You'll be frustrated with, um, you know, leadership challenges that just are par for the course with running any group of people in any organisational setting. Um, your calling becomes a reference point when things do get tough and when things don't go the way that you imagined or dreamed they would. The other thing I would say is that um, the challenges you um, encounter along the way become building blocks of learning. I've learned as much from bad leadership as I have from good leadership. And that includes my own bad leadership, let me just say. I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, but you learn from those. Um, I would encourage anybody, you know, getting into officership to um, to take responsibility for your own development. I've been ridiculously blessed by the army in, in study opportunities, um, but what I've done with those has been on my shoulders. Yeah. And so I've wanted to leverage every learning opportunity that has been available, but I've also had to make some available. Our second appointment at Horsham, we inherited, you know, six emergency accommodation units, a professional team of welfare workers who were very good at what they did, and we had no clue how to lead them. <laughs> None whatsoever. Perfect. So I saw it as my responsibility to get the skills I needed to be able to lead that team effectively. Yeah, the truth is that people either upskill or they Correct. they raise it to a level that they can manage, and that's not always a good no. way either. Don't stop learning. I mean, I think um, John Maxwell's law of the lead applies here. You will never, ever lead people above who are above your lead of leadership. Yeah. So lift your lead of leadership. Don't be threatened by quality people, capable people. We have people in our congregations who have marketplace leadership skills who we can learn a lot from and gain a lot from. Um, lead alongside them. When we went to Horsham, if I had walked in there and said, I've got the red applets, so therefore I'm the font of all knowledge, I would have failed miserably. Um, we needed to humble ourselves under the leadership of much smarter people than us. When we were at Norunga, we had Mark Grant, who was our assistant officer at the time, and phenomenal young man, very gifted. 
and you know he understood the role of uh, of the second chair leader so well and you know we, we were able to learn to embrace his giftedness rather than feeling threatened by it so I think that's really important. Um, I think we need to trust God in this space. We, you know, we could never have imagined the pathway we'd be on today. Um, I, I feel as though as, as officers, we're trained as GPs, to use that terminology, as general yeah. practitioners. And over Which the, kind of scares some people it too. It does, and that's okay because those being a GP exposes you to a lot of different experiences. What about the argument, though, that if you're exposed to a lot of different things, you're not that well-equipped? At any of them, do you do you buy into that or not? No, no, not necessarily. Look, I think that I think it comes back to your attitude and the way you approach it. We were, we've been, as any officer has, um, exposed to a whole range of experiences, and we have found that we have naturally found our niche. God has led us and exposed us to pathways that didn't make sense at the time, and even just you know saying yes to a YWAM team, for example, why? Why did we do that? It kind of it was outside of our context, yet that was a pivotal part of our learning and development to where we are today. Um, we we have become, in a sense, if I can uh, draw on that GP analogy, over time we have become specialists. We've developed specialist skills and 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 passions in areas that have been because of all the general yeah. practitioner stuff. Yeah. I'm and not sure we would have discovered that by being just launched into one or pigeonhole into a role at the beginning. Yeah. All because, without being too sort of cliche about it, you said yes. Absolutely. At the I, very beginning. Absolutely. Even going to Darwin, you know, where was Palmerston? We didn't, we had never heard of Palmerston. Where was college, you know, like right from the beginning to, to sort of step out in faith and leave dreams, if you like, behind and... Yeah, and, and, and the other thing I want to say is God will sustain. I remember in my candidate's interview being sitting in a very intimidating panel of officers. This was a long time ago yeah. now, so I'm sure things have changed. <laughs> of, course, of course, it's much easier now. Um, yeah. And I remember being questioned by a, a senior officer, when I say senior, senior in years, um, and she asked us, Mature. what would you do if you are sent a long way away from family and someone, you, yeah, one of your family members got sick? And I said, well, I don't really know. How, how could I know? She pushed me on it. She really wanted me to respond to that. And my response at the time you know, wasn't adequate. She just, um, I said, well, I don't, you know, so as much as I love my family, um, I've chosen this pathway. I've responded to God's call and we'll go where we needed to go and we'll cross those bridges when we come to them. And if someone just gets sick, we're not going to be wanting to run home every time that happens. Well, she didn't like that answer. It got very upset with me, so obviously there was some pain there. And, you know, in those first four years, Matt, we were tested in that space. In the four years we were in Darwin, uh, we didn't have social media. We barely had dial-up internet. Um, in those four years, uh, my my mum got seriously ill. My mum and dad split at that period of time. Uh, Vanessa's dad had a heart attack. Her grandfather died. Her sister lost the baby. My niece had a hole in the heart. Her brother got arrested and we had premature twins. And in, in that period of time, we felt this deep, deep conviction were where God wanted us to be. We never felt once that we had to get out of there. We grieved, we hurt. But because of the conviction and the calling that we carried, we knew we were where God wanted us to be. 
And he sustained us through that. And I believe strongly that that set us um, up for the challenges that we have faced since then. Going to Solomon Islands, you know, right on the um, eve of, of leaving, I just find out that my dad's got cancer. And I'm faced with that same reality again. And and the, and the God that got you through... We'll do it again. ...at Palmerston. Yep. We'll do it again. But that's not to say, and that doesn't... I'm not saying you're saying this, but that... The, the world is a small place when it needs to be. Look, it you know, is. And you can and, and you build, look, come the other, home. The other thing I think is important to say with all of that is to build strong networks. Build them. Don't rely just on social media. While that changes the world, and we're going we're gonna to rely quite heavily on that in Solomon Islands, mm. build strong local networks. We had people around us in Palmerston who served us and loved us and blessed us in ways that we could never repay. And these were people who were often outside the army as well because we took the time to build the networks. We immersed ourselves in our community. We've embraced our appointment as to the community, not just to the core. Um, And those networks have served us well over the years. Well, good on you. Rob, thanks so much for coming in. I know that you've got probably just under a million things to do. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) And Vanessa's probably washing walls or something as we speak. And like we've already mentioned that she's not here and we we pray for you guys as you you head off um, to uh, the Solomon Islands. Um, In fact, I'm going to pray for you. Thank you. Because I think people that that listen to the podcast and people who are mindful of the faith of people that have gone before them in ministry and people that are, are contemplating and thinking about ministry, they, they take what people say uh, very seriously. as they And a lot of it, some of it resonates with their story, some of it doesn't. But um, I think for you, as you head off on Tuesday, we want to pray uh, for you. So let's, let's pray. Thank you. Father, we thank you for Rob and Vanessa. We, um, we are mindful of the calling on their life to serve you wherever you uh, require them to go. And at this time, as you are preparing them in just a few days' time to head out and to fly out to the Solomon Islands, we think of Adam and Beck uh, and their families and the communities that they leave behind. Well, that you you are faithful and you have gone before them. Um, so we pray uh, for a, a mighty moving of your Holy Spirit across the Solomon Islands. Lord, it's not by wise or persuasive words that communities are transformed but it's a demonstration of your power at work. So for your power to be at work in Robert and Vanessa, we pray. And for all the soldiers and the community at large in the Solomon Islands, may they find your peace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks very much for listening. If you've got any questions or comments for Rob, I don't know how we'd get them to you, but if you're on social media, we might be able to pick them up if you want to follow up. So uh, just a reminder, this is the second last podcast for the year. Next week, uh, we've got Matt and Fiona Keane joining us uh, as we sort of wrap up the year. So uh, thanks very much. Thanks for joining us for more about Officership. You can join the conversation at facebook.com forward slash SA Candidates Australia. If you want to explore Officership further, please speak to your local core officer or candidate secretary. The Salvation Army needs more leaders. Is God asking for more of you?